0: everyone, and welcome to the show, episode 71 of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andrejko. Thanks again for being a part of this journey. Excited to introduce my guest for today, Rick Smith, who's the founder and CEO of Axon. And if you guys don't recognize the name Axon, you may recognize what it was formerly called Taser. Uh, you guys probably recognize the Taser device, you know, used a lot in law enforcement, obviously. But Rick actually pioneered that business back in 1993, been growing the company for now for 25 years and we really talk a lot about those early days you know how he met the inventor of the taser device that he had been working on it for i think 15 years prior or something like that and we talk about that journey early on in terms of starting the business and all the different kind of um, ups and downs, if you will, um, that went into that. But I think it really you know, is that testament of longevity and all the things you have to go through sometimes and the consistency to keep going forward with it um, to see that outcome. He's also the author of a new book called The End of Killing, talking about making the bullet obsolete and kind of some of his theories and ideas around that and just really how technology can play that role in ter- terms of really changing the way we look at you know, firearms and bullets and those type of things. So really fascinating interview, fascinating guy, a lot of great stories he shares that I think you guys will be able to take away on your journeys. So without further ado, let's jump into my chat today with Rick Smith. Let's get it started. Rick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining today. Thanks for having me on. Well, so I'm really excited to talk about your story, your journey, um, and and kind of, you know, how you grew the company, your, grew your company. And gosh, if people don't know you specifically, they're probably familiar with the products and stuff you guys have created. But I wanted to start off and take a step back because I, I think it's valuable, especially for the audience to understand kind of where you came from and, you know, kind of how this journey started off. Um, I'm curious if you could start, though, with, because so, so it looked like you went to Harvard went for neuroscience, which is... That's pretty cool stuff. Can you talk a little bit about just your upbringing to kind of kick us off? Maybe what, what were you doing Was school? Kind of a big thing for you? Do you. I'm assuming you had some pretty good grades that go to Harvard. Start us out there a little bit, and then we'll kind of uh, take the journey and go forward.
1: Yes. So, uh, so my dad was a second or third generation West Point military. Um, and then he left the military before I was born and became a serial entrepreneur. So we moved around a lot. Uh, he was you know, starting companies, failing, starting another one, getting hired somewhere. Uh, and then when I was uh, 16, he, between years of 14 and 16, we moved to Silicon Valley where he joined a startup out there and that one was pretty successful. And uh, I definitely got the bug. I noticed he was always happier, even when he was failing at, at doing something entrepreneurial, he was happier than when he was making more money you know, working in a big company. So, uh, when I went off to school, uh, I pretty well knew that I wanted to do something more on the entrepreneurial side rather than a traditional career track.
0: Did you have any, when you were going off to college and kind of thinking through, did you have any particular ideas at that time of like, hey, this would be kind of a cool business to start or I like that idea? Did you have anything in particular at that time or were kind of just open to the possibilities?
1: Yeah. So, the reason I, I studied the sciences at Harvard, I was very interested in I'm a bit of a sci-fi geek, and uh, the reason I studied neurobiology was that I was very interested in creating robotic uh, prosthetics, robotic limbs, frankly, like the $6 million man from the 70s or Luke Skywalker when he got his robotic arm. I thought that was the coolest thing ever, and so that was my original plan, was I wanted to go work on advanced, uh, like, you know, super performance machinery designed to interface to the human body. Uh, As I got to college and um, worked through it, I had this incident where two of my friends were shot and killed, and I became very interested in the whole problem of violence and gun control, uh, and it struck me that this could be a really interesting place to focus on creating and inventing new types of weapons that could take advantage of uh, my neurobiology background. That's basically what a taser does. It's It's a portable nerve stimulator. That paralyzes you, um, and now it turns out I wasn't the first one to have this idea that uh, the Taser weapon had been around since the early 1970s. Turns out it was a uh, one of the leading scientists on the Apollo Moon landing project who had created this, starting in the late 1960s. And so it's almost like something out of a Marvel comic book. I, I called this guy up, and uh, you know I'm 23 years old, kind of young and dumb, and look at what I want to do with my life. And I meet this 73 year old you know, NASA scientist who had been working on this technology for decades, and I convinced him to teach me what he knew, and we'd give it another shot together. The, the early generations were pretty buggy, and the the, the company had failed twice. Uh, and it was really this. So this is the third iteration uh, of a Taser company, and we finally got it right on the third try.
0: So if you can go in depth on that a little bit, so he, so this gentleman. You said he failed trying to start this company twice. Was it just the execution of it or maybe not have the business acumen versus what he had kind of from a science standpoint? What was the reason do you think that maybe it didn't take off? Maybe it wasn't the timing wasn't right. I don't know.
1: Yeah, you know, sometimes uh, technology is, is kind of buggy uh, when, it, you know, the first couple of generations. So I think some of it was just that, that, um, you know, Rodney King was shot with one of the early taser weapons that he had created and it didn't work very well. Um, And that's because of some of the bugs that were in the the tech. And then the other part is I'd say Jack was more mad scientist than businessman. And so when he would raise money, uh, he was 100% focused on inventing. And he was a hell of an inventor. But he didn't really put near the effort into building a company uh, as he did into building prototypes of really cool inventions. So, uh, you know, they never really executed well in terms of hiring a real sales leader, a real marketing leader, you know from a manufacturing perspective. Uh these things were just, the early generation tasers were much more like uh you might see you know kind of like a NASA project where you're going to build one of them so it's all done by hand. Uh so it hadn't really been built for mass manufacture. So, it's, it's, Jack and I think we're pretty good pretty big, pretty good complements. Uh, because you know I just came out of business school so at least I had some theoretical background and, and from having grown up listening to all my dad's stories um, I was chomping at the bit to attack this as a business problem uh, with Jack really as my partner who knew the tech inside out.
0: You know I'm curious to ask and and go into this how, how in-depth you'd like but obviously you know as you mentioned you kind of had some different things you want to do the the uh you know the robotic limbs and those type of things unfortunately the tragedy that you know you'd went through with a couple of your friends how how did that impact you from a standpoint of just you know i guess thinking differently about the world and and maybe what you wanted to do with your life versus maybe before that happened i i'm assuming that was a pretty impactful moment for you
1: It, it was um you know i think in general uh you know, entrepreneurship is an opportunity to change the world. It, it sounds a little bit cliche, but ultimately, I think the most important thing is finding something that you're really passionate about. Uh, I, I knew I was interested in entrepreneurship, but just doing business for the sake of business is not uh, you know nearly as inspired as once this happened. I felt like, oh, this is a huge problem. It's one that the United States in particular has struggled with uh, and continues to struggle with to this day. Um, you know, one thing, we've found a lot of success in policing, uh, but police only shoot and kill a couple hundred people every year in the United States. The real, you know, the real tragedies are the 35,000 people that die at the hands of one another. Uh, and so we, we still have a long way to go. Uh, we've only recently started to come out and very publicly state our mission is to make the bullet obsolete. Uh, and I, we've been very careful about how we say that, that we're not saying we want to take away anybody's rights or get involved in the whole gun debate. Uh, there's actually a great analogy, back in the early 1900s, New York City was facing a horrible pollution crisis. Uh, disease was spreading from horse manure. There were so many horses in New York City. Now, imagine like people's emotional connection to their horses. If you said, we're gonna take your horses away, you would have had a revolt. But instead, of course, there was a technology shift, along comes the horseless carriage. Uh, and today, you know, people can still own horses. It's much more of a, you know, of, of a hobby. People typically don't use them for transportation. Uh, I think we'll see the same thing happen with firearms, where uh, you know, people, uh, I, I, we're not going to get into the debate over the legalities and the constitutionality. Uh, there's a long history of relationships with uh, weapons in the United States, but my belief is if we could give people something similar to Captain Kirk phaser that was actually more effective, more reliable, and didn't require you kill someone to protect yourself, the vast majority of people would simply choose that option. And uh, it was that insight, you know, early on that got me really excited that, you know, government rarely actually solves key problems, uh, whether it's diseases or other things. Now, government can play a role in sponsoring R&D, et cetera, but, uh, you know, I I don't think there's a pure legislative solution here. At least we've been pretty far from finding one. Uh, but I do think there's a technology and invention solution to these problems.
0: Yeah, and I definitely want to get back to that a little bit more. I, I had something I wrote down here, and I'm just very curious about it. This was around 1993. This is pre-internet. How did you find this guy? How did you <laughs> find, like, he was so, doing this?
1: Yeah, so, yeah, this was pre-internet. Um, I went to the – well, I started this when I was at the University of Leuven in Belgium. I was in graduate school. And I went to the law library there and I just started looking up patents. Um, And then I started looking up in periodicals. I would do searches on medical, uh, electrical safety. I wanted to understand how electricity impacted the body. And then I had heard of the taser weapon. It was already kind of a sociological phenomenon. You know, Jean-Claude Van Damme, the action hero, you know, action actor had used one in the movie Time Cop. Clint Eastwood had used one in The Enforcer back in the 1970s. So... I'd already heard of the Taser brand. Uh, and as I started you know, looking it up at the library, I kept coming across articles about this guy named Jack Kober, who was the inventor. Uh, he had a very colorful story, you know, he was a former NASA scientist. And the more I read about him, I was like, oh, this is a pretty interesting guy. I wonder whatever happened to him. And then lo and behold, I was going through patents, also in the library, uh, and I discovered that he had some recent patents that were issued to an address in Tucson, Arizona, which is pretty close to where my parents live. And so the final step to find him, I used the uh, equivalent of Google back in the day. I dialed 411 and uh, asked the operator for his phone number. And he had a listed number. And so I just called him up out of the blue. And next thing I know, I'm standing at his house. You know, he invited me down to to show me his life's work. And I'm standing on his porch meeting this 73-year-old, you know, kind of mad scientist uh, who was showing me 30 years worth of inventing and, and taser development uh, spread around his living room in Tucson, Arizona.
0: So so then how'd you guys kick off the business? Was it kind of a, a mutual kind of split partnership? Did, I mean, what what was kind of the way that you guys structured it early on to get things kicked off?
1: So that was really interesting. So Jack was very frustrated with his business experience to date, he'd been in, you know, he'd helped found two different companies. Um, and both of them ended kind of badly, but the, the product, uh, had some issues. And then I think the, uh, just the teams of people that, that came together, uh, it, both of them ended in litigation apparently. And so Jack had a bit of a jaded view. And when I first met him uh, originally, he didn't, he, he he really didn't express interest in working together. He wanted to do his own thing. You know, he was 73 years old. He was trying to raise money to give it a third try. Um, and he was he was very skeptical on uh, business people in general. And so my original proposal was, you know, that we would go in as partners and that he would have equity ownership. Um, and then we would go out and raise money. But interestingly, he was not interested in equity. He basically said he felt burned from that before. He just wanted a simple royalty arrangement with guaranteed payments uh you know the minimum was uh twenty five hundred dollars a month in minimum payments and then uh, it was two dollars per taser weapon and 25 cents per cartridge and royalties to use his patents uh so that's how we structured it now i ended up uh giving him about five percent of the company just because i wanted him to have some skin in the game even though he didn't express much interest in it uh and so that's what the original deal looked like he had five percent equity uh, plus royalties and then he also came on as an employee uh, for a, about eight months uh, wh- when he was you know, working in his garage together and then he moved up to Scottsdale and he was really helping transfer his know-how to me and then eventually to uh, an engineering manager that we hired.
0: You know, and I know a lot of people struggle with, you know, you have a great idea, you're ready to kind of get started as this podcast is called, right? And then, you know, taking that leap of faith and actually doing it. So can you talk about maybe the first few months, first year of the business? What are some of the things that you wish maybe you knew then that, you know, now um, that were hurdles that you had to jump or things that, you know, you wish you could have known to look out for, I guess?
1: Yeah. So the first thing I would say, uh, the most important thing in getting started is to just get started. You know, it sounds really simple, but uh you know, Every morning, I would just get out of bed, and I would say, okay, I'm going to work on the business today, and I'm going to figure out whatever it is that I can do that starts to move the ball down the field. So in the first month or so, that was just going to the library and doing research and making phone calls. I went to visit gun stores and spy shops. Uh, I was just doing research on what was out there. How are these things sold? If I went to a gun store, what would they tell me about the available options? If I went to a spy shop, which is where a lot of these stun guns and and personal alarms are sold, you know, what could I learn there? And just sort of pulling at the thread, that process eventually led me to meet Jack Cover. Now, before then, I had some different ideas about where I was going to go with the business. I wanted to invent a sort of a whole new category of electrical weapon. Uh, Actually, the the plan was to build a 12-gauge shotgun round and see if we could engineer the electronics inside of it. Uh, And then when I met Jack... uh, he basically, uh, one of the reasons I went to meet him was I, I wanted to ask him, hey, do you think this idea would work? It turns out it's really hard to get uh, people to, there, there aren't many experts in the world in things that have not been done. So I met with various you know neuroscience professors and, and other folks, and I had a number of theories that I developed from reading all the electrical safety literature. And, but when I'd ask them, hey, okay, here's, here's my theory, here's the electrical output, I think we could generate from a power supply small enough to fit a 12 gauge shotgun round. Do you think this would work? And what I got back was a lot of blank stares. They basically said, well, nobody's ever tested something like this. Like, it's really hard to know if it would work or not. And so eventually I found, you know, Jack is the inventor of the taser weapon. I said, hey, you know, how did you test these things early on? And do you think this would work? And then the conversation evolved where then he ends up pitching me on a newer version of the taser weapon, where he convinced me, he said, look, that the the thing you're working on, there's a lot of research to be done, but I've been building these wired handheld taser weapons for 30 years. You know, I know this space cold, Uh, and one of the challenges with the early taser weapons was legal because he used gunpowder to launch the projectiles. That makes it a gun under U.S. law, which leads to a whole bunch of legal restrictions. He had developed a way to launch the darts using compressed air instead of gunpowder. And so the thesis behind his business plan was much simpler. We take a known technology, we just change this one piece, and it changes the whole legal framework. And so he ended up convincing me to drop what I was doing and work on his project instead. It just took me about a month to talk him into doing it. So I guess the first thing thing—it's a bit long-winded there is just you don't know where it's going to take you if you just start working on it every day and you just get an attitude of, okay, what can I do today that will make me smarter about this that will that will in some way lead me closer to having a business and you just get up and every morning you start working on it Uh, the other thing i would say that i I wish i had known back then uh was the importance of getting the right people on your team and everybody says that you know and it's almost like a fortune cookie platitude that you know your people are your most important asset or getting the right people is the most important thing but I would say in the early days, I might have paid a little bit of lip service to it where you're so focused on trying to solve technical problems. There's so much to do that recruiting feels like an administrative, you know, it's like an overhead activity. And I didn't put near enough effort into it where now I've realized if you make one really fantastic hire and that person is legitimately better at you at whatever job you're hiring them for, then you've just accomplished more through that one hiring event than you could accomplish in a lifetime of work doing the work yourself. And now if you multiply that through, you know, building out a team, you realize pretty quickly, if you get the right hire, everything takes care of itself. Literally you never have to worry about that functional area again. And if you get the wrong hire, you're going to be managing over this person around them through them. Literally you're doomed to fail in that area, no matter how hard you work at it. Uh, So it took me a while I think to really realize the absolute criticality of hiring. And I'm not talking about good people. There's lots of good people in this world. I'm talking about true badasses, people that are ninja warriors at what they do uh, and are best in the world. And those people are very hard to find. It takes a lot of networking and effort, uh, but it is the single most important thing you can do as an entrepreneur is, is really hiring the right team.
0: That might be a good path to stand for just a little bit. I'm curious about, you know, leadership and management, because obviously, when you start in a company, you know, a lot of it's just you. um, And you talk about Jack, obviously, was involved. But when you started to scale the business over the years, and you bring in employees, how, how much of a learning curve was that actually figuring out how to manage people how to um, set up the team properly, how to do all that? Did you have some mentors or people helping you with that? Or is that a lot of stuff you create on your own?
1: Uh, no, well, luckily, my dad had been, you know, uh, a serial entrepreneur and had been had worked in large companies as well as doing his own thing. So he was really a, an incredible mentor for me through this whole process. Um, and, and he was just an amazing guy through it all. You know, he, he was our original source of funding. Um, but he always took a stance. He's like, hey, Rick, you know, my brother and I started the business together. And he said, hey, this is your guy's business. You know, I'll be an advisor. You know, I'll be an investor. But it's really, you know, you guys have got to figure this out. Uh, it's not my business. I, I've done, you know, sort of done my things in life and uh, within six years we literally bankrupted my dad. He had, he had invested everything into this business. And there were, there was about a year long period where it looked like we weren't going to make it. That was pretty stressful. Um, but he, having him as a mentor was, was just really powerful. The one other thing I would say is, uh, I understand why many founder CEOs don't stay around and survive the transition to running a larger business, because it is a completely different job description. When you're a founder in the early days, you have to be in the middle of everything. You have to be washing the floors and shipping the boxes. And, you know, there's just not there's not a large team to delegate to. And you just you've got to you've got to make sure everything is happening as you get bigger that those same behaviors uh, will lead to failure because you become a chronic micromanager, you know, as you get larger, you have to learn to let go. Um, And the same personality traits that made you successful as an early entrepreneur will make you a terrible leader and manager as the team grows. Um, And uh, for me, that was just a, you know, a life journey that led to me being in a place of extreme burnout where I was I I was having conversations with the board about retiring. Um, And actually, for me, part of the transformation was we actually came up with a plan where I moved with my family to Europe for nine months on what was a semi-sabbatical. I went to uh, help hire our European sales team um, and to take a little bit of a break. And what I discovered in that process was preparing to work remote actually forced me to delegate all the things I was micromanaging. So it became a really interesting forcing function. Uh, and so as I was actually preparing to potentially leave the business, I became a much better CEO than I had been when I was really focused on like doing what I thought the job was. Uh, and then coming back, you know, from that that uh, year abroad, uh, I was super energized and I, I feel like I really learned to let go and to delegate much more effectively. Uh, Cause I learned to run the business, you know, Two three hours a day from across the globe, uh, which meant I had to focus down on what are the really important things I need to be involved in, and just delegate everything else.
0: I'm going to kick myself after this if I don't if I don't ask a deeper question from what you said a, of a couple of minutes ago. What happened six years in? You said it almost went bankrupt, or you almost bankrupted the, your dad that was funding it. What what happened at that time, and how did you get out of it? I guess. So,
1: oh, so we um, we had. our our first two product launches were failures so our first product launch was a consumer taser weapon and that uh that just never really gained traction then we did this publicity stunt where we uh created an automotive security product basically a club for your steering wheel that would shock you if you didn't have the remote and tried to remove it um in retrospect it, it looks like a horrible idea at the time when we did this at the consumer electronics show as a pr stunt to test the waters we had tremendous publicity uh we had orders from some of the biggest automotive shops in the u.s automotive chains uh, and we really thought we were onto something and it was right around the time that we finally brought that product to market and we realized what we had built was kind of a a freak show product i mean it was really got a lot of press but people weren't actually interested in buying it Uh, and that's when we we had to moment of realization oh my god we've burned through millions of dollars of funding we'd raised about six million in total um of which uh, my dad had put in half and there was another investor who had put in a half and as we realized that product had failed i didn't think we had enough runway to make it and so i, I literally went to my dad and i said hey you, you've got to stop putting money in here i i don't see a way out of this at which time he pointed out to me he said hey rick um Kind of a newsflash here. It's too late. I've already put almost everything into this, and he signed a letter of guarantee at the bank, so he was on the hook for about another million dollars if we'd gone under, and he had about five hundred thousand dollars left in his uh, in his accounts, and so he basically said, "Look, if if the company goes under, I'm going to get wiped out. The bank will come. They'll take all my liquid assets. They'll take the house. Like we're toast. So, we have no option. Like we're past the point of no return. So." You know, you have like a couple of weeks to put together a business plan on how you're going to turn it around. And I will put whatever I have left into it and I'll get uh, Bruce Culver, was our other investor, to match him. And they did. They put in a million dollars. And the business plan we put together in that moment of desperation was to pivot and go after the police market. Um, and we had really identified the biggest bug in the early taser weapon was one that was very hard to wrap your head around. And that was that it just it was underpowered. Rodney King, when I first heard of Rodney King not being stopped by an LAPD taser, Jack the inventor had described it to me as a problem that they didn't charge the batteries fully, but it turned out that wasn't the problem. The early generation of the taser weapon created a painful shock, and so it would work great in a demo where there was nothing you know, really at stake, but if you're dealing with somebody who's afraid of going to jail for the rest of their life or you know, they're high on drugs, that painful shock wasn't enough to stop them. And so we had to go back and do all the bioengineering to figure out how we could retune the electricity to actually cause paralysis, not pain. Uh, And we had done some of the research that that, that made me believe we could do it. We've done some animal lab research. And so our our final and last pivot, knowing we would run out of money, was to create this new high-powered taser and to launch it in the police market because we identified that consumers didn't believe the technology worked uh, and what we hear from them is, hey, if this thing's so great, why aren't the police using it? And it turns out their instincts were right; the technology was pretty buggy. Uh, so we, we pivoted. We had a million dollars to carry the company uh, through development, tooling, product launch, and we barely, barely made it. Uh, in fact, we had—I remember—we had, I remember we had uh, Duracell was one of our suppliers, and we had uh, bills from Duracell that were past a year past due, um, but by stretching our vendors and stretching every source capital we could, we launched this new high-powered police taser in late 99. And from the moment that hit, it was so powerful in demonstrations, uh, just it would immediately knock down anyone. And they'd get up and they'd be fine moments later that we began seeing revenues grow immediately from the first demonstration. And within six months, we were profitable. Within a year, we were cash flow positive. And within 18 months, uh, we were actually able to execute an IPO. So we went from being on our deathbed in late 99 to a public company offering on May 8th of 2001.
0: Wow, that's pretty incredible. And, and it really, I mean, the undertones there of just the belief your father had in you guys, right? That he was you know willing to put in the dollars and, and kind of believe that you guys are going to pull through and figure it out. I think that's a, a, a huge thing. Not everyone can have their father maybe invest in their company, but just in that support. Um, system, I think, is vital as well. Wouldn't you agree?
1: Oh, for sure. Now, Mom was not as big a fan. Uh, she was okay. upset about all this. But, uh, you know, my dad had a very high risk tolerance as a serial entrepreneur, um, and to be honest, he, he had a higher risk tolerance than my, even my brother or I. We, when we started seeing the, the red flashing lights that we didn't think we were going to make it, uh, I think his emotional support and, frankly, the fact that we had uh, we had put him in such a precarious position was an incredible motivator and and I would tell you there were times where I sat and and you sort of have this realization you know I had this incredible opportunity most people don't have because my dad had been successful in one of his ventures that he was willing to fund this venture Uh, and so I would tell you that as we were failing you feel like a real idiot when you know you have this special opportunity most people don't have and then you blow it and you don't only wipe yourself out but you take your parents down in the process that was a pretty low uh, pretty low moment of self-esteem going through that
0: and I want to get into the the book that you recently wrote. But one of the questions I had here, I want to make sure I ask it cuz it seems like it's the exception not the rule, but to fact check me on this. If I read correctly, is that as, as a CEO you don't take a salary, it's more performance based, which I thought was really unique. Can you share that a little bit of how you guys came to that and what that's all about?
1: Yeah, so um about 2 years ago, uh the board of directors came to me. So this was, you know, about a year after I'd come back from Europe and I was, uh, I was going through sort of a mid career yeah, you know, or midlife crisis, I guess is the way to put it. Like you, you basically think, okay, I'm about halfway through my career. I just came back from this extended uh, tour of duty in Europe. Like what's next. And I really loved the company and our mission. Um, but I was, uh, I was evaluating, I was thinking about, you know, do I want to do another startup? Like, I really enjoy the sense like you're building something uh, as more of an entrepreneur than as like a, you know, a professional CEO. And right around that time, Tesla had announced, uh, they had just done a new compensation plan for Elon Musk where it was, he gave up basically all pay and he got stock options uh, that would pay off only once he had at least doubled the company. And then I think from from there, uh, you know, every time the company went up by, another factor of its, its current value, he would earn 1% of the company. And so the board came to me and said, hey, would you be interested in this? And I looked at it and I said, absolutely, that, this would be great because uh, I love the company, I love the mission, I love the products we're working on. I'm feeling, uh, I was feeling a little bit, you know, just a little listless, like I'm you know, at the midpoint of my career, uh, you know, do I want to build something again from scratch? Uh, and then this this really shifted my perspective, where it gave me an opportunity to basically become an entrepreneur again, uh, but leading uh, the same company on the same mission. So I basically uh, I get paid minimum wage because under Arizona law you have to, um, and then above that uh, I basically earn one percent of the company for every billion dollars of market cap that we add. So when we did this, the company is worth about one point two billion. Uh, The first performance goal is at two and a half billion and then three and a half, four and a half, up to a maximum at thirteen and a half billion. and And so I basically get options worth about 1% of the company for each of those milestones. And then they're also coupled with some financial performance milestones, but the most important ones are are the market cap. Uh, So I signed on for that a couple of years ago. And and then actually I learned a lot of people in the company uh, were also interested in, hey, that's great for you, Rick, you know, but- what about the rest of us? We, we'd love to have an opportunity to participate. And so one of the things I'm proudest of in my professional life was we, we engineered a, a compensation program where people could take a portion of their pay and buy into a very high risk, high reward plan, just like the one I did. But it, for me, it was all or nothing. You know, Most people don't have that luxury of being able to just walk away from any income for 10 years. Uh, so they could take a portion of their salary and uh and, and redirect it or portion of their compensation, and redirect it into what we call our exponential stock plan, which uh is set to the exact same milestones as mine. So everybody's aligned to hit the same performance uh and it could be, you know, generate some life changing money for uh for a lot of people now.
0: I mean, that's really interesting. And if, again, as you said, kind of everyone's rowing in the same direction and there's actually some, you know, kind of a North star, if you will, everyone's kind of right there seeing what they need to do. So that's pretty cool. Um, So let's talk about the book a little bit, cause I was intrigued and, and I'm always interested, you know, in the question of, you know, why now, why not five years ago? Why not five years in the future? Why was now the right time to to write and launch a book? What were some of the things you were trying to get across um, that maybe you you thought could be impactful?
1: Yeah. So, uh, so the name of the book is the end of killing. And it's really, it's a manifesto, it's uh, it is a call to arms, both internally and for our customers and for people in general that are interested in the idea of violence as a problem to be solved, rather than just something we accept like the weather that you know we, we're just a violent species that's actually not entirely true. And in fact, the trends of history over the past few centuries have shown dramatic decreases in violence in human society so your question is why would I write that book right now? And really the, the timing was right. When we first entered police work, what we learned was there was a tremendous amount of discomfort about non-lethal weapons. Uh, there was this fear that, oh, you know, are they gonna take my gun away? Are the politicians gonna force me to use these, these other things that are not as reliable or as effective? Uh, they were sort of considered the politically correct uh, you know, weapons that might be foisted on a police officer by the city council when that officer is mostly worried about how do they defend themselves doing a dangerous, uh, you know, a very dangerous job. And I think the, the reason that the timing was right now was we have built a lot of credibility, uh, you know, with police around the world that are now using the taser weapon. And we've always been very clear that the taser weapon is not a replacement for the firearm, you use it in different situations. So there was some risk in us now coming out and saying, well, actually, we see a future where that's different. We believe that within the next 10 years, we could actually create non lethal weapons that are more effective and reliable than even a bullet. And I knew there was some risk in doing this because, you know, if our customers heard, hey, we're going to take your guns away that would be a really negative backlash. Um, But we, I I think we got it right. You know, we basically came out and we said, look, you know, it's a really bad situation to be in as a human being. If you're a cop and you've got a gun in your hand and you're going through the door in some building and you don't know what's on the other side, your heart's racing, you know, your, your vision is impaired, you get tunnel vision, and now you have to make a life or death decision in the dark in less than a second and if you make a mistake that can ruin not only somebody else's life but it can ruin your career it can ruin your life you could end up going to jail um you know that's that's a rough position to put any human being in and uh i've been very careful in the book to lay out that this is not to say that you know uh, police shouldn't go on patrol without uh without a gun but what we are saying is we believe over time that we can generate weapons that are actually more effective at protecting you and they don't carry the lethal and catastrophic consequences. And I've been really surprised at just how well received this has been uh, by uh, the police community, where I'd say 90% have been extremely positive, where they, they basically agree and say, look, you're right. You know, We've seen police officers' lives ruined. And of course, nobody feels good about killing someone, especially if you later learn you know, oh, this was somebody with mental health issues or, you know, sometimes it's a 13 year old with a cell phone, not, you know, some uh, an adult with a gun. Uh, so the, the point was, I think, just given all of the uh, the pervasiveness of video uh, around the world, you know, as it, people we, we now see everything, uh, you know, on Twitter or on, uh, you know, on, on Facebook live video feeds, uh, it's become more and more immediate. Uh, that these situations pose a real risk to police as well as the people that they're interacting with. And, um, so I just took the risk and I said, look, eventually you've got to call the moonshot and our moonshot isn't to be, you know, just a secondary device that you use. If there's, if it's convenient, like we actually, we want to go for primacy. We want to become the top, the top weapon so that no longer is lethal force, uh, you know, the top choice. So, um, sorry if it's a little bit of a rambling uh, answer there. It's just, no. I mean, it was very difficult to know. There was a lot of risk in doing it, but there always would be. And we just felt, all right, we think we've built enough credibility that, and because we're not saying, it, we're, we're being very clear, it's not here today. We're not saying that we've hit this performance milestone. We're starting a conversation though. what would it take uh, in order for you to go to a non-lethal weapon before you go to your lethal weapon. And that's leading to a lot of great and thoughtful conversations Uh, that's also helping us understand, okay, you know, what are the performance criteria we have to hit for that to come true?
0: And are you guys seeing this um, more from a a police standpoint or are you seeing this from kind of mass consumption? Like, you know, I I think a conceal and carry, right, Um, instead of carrying a a firearm, you would carry something like this. Is that is that kind of a path or, or am I off on that?
1: No, nope, for sure. I mean, uh, but we think we need to win the battle in law enforcement first because that's where uh, those are the professional users. I mean, that that's where things really get tested and in, in technology vetted very thoroughly. Uh, I do believe once we once we achieve it in law enforcement, that then we'll see the opportunity in the general private citizen market. Uh, Once it's accepted and proven that these devices are actually more effective and more reliable than, you know, the medieval technology of firing lead balls at people, um, we think that that's what will also unlock the civilian market for us, which can be much larger. It's a bigger business opportunity, but it's also a bigger moral opportunity. Uh, There are many more lives we can save if we can convert most of the public to carrying a an advanced taser weapon, as opposed to carrying a pistol.
0: This is really great. I, I always like to kind of end these conversations on, and, and I know you've had a vast career, a lot of different things you've done, but is there maybe one piece of advice? Um, It could be a quote you live by. It could be, I don't know, just, just any thoughts that you have for the entrepreneur out there, or the person that, again, is trying to look to be impactful to the world, create something on their own. Anything that you might share with them that could be helpful to get them along on their journey?
1: Yeah, it's uh, nice and simple. It's, uh, you know, the Nike tagline of just do it. Uh, I think that is what separates a successful entrepreneur from the rest. Uh, It's almost everybody you talk to has had some idea for some venture they would want to do, but very, very few people just take the step of doing it. And I think, you can convince yourself, oh, you know, the business plan's not fully baked. I don't know enough yet. There's lots of reasons not to do it, um, but ultimately, the that there's that moment in time where you just say, okay, I'm going to do this, and you may not even know exactly what that means, other than every morning I'm going to get out of bed and I'm going to work on it. Now that may you may have a job that you can't quit yet, so you may do this in parallel while you're also you know, working at your job, or you may quit your job and just throw yourself at it. Uh, But the, sometimes it's the simple things in life. It is the singular act of telling yourself, I am doing this, uh, that pivots you from this being like an intellectual exercise or something you just, you know, think and talk about to where you're actually committed and you're taking action and you're holding yourself accountable every day, where, you know, hey, by the end of today, I want to know I did something that moved me towards that goal.
0: And, and where can everyone find you online if they want to connect with you?
1: So, uh, again, the book is The End of Killing, and it's available on Amazon and everywhere you'd expect. Uh, and then I also have a website at endofkilling.com. Uh, or if you're interested in learning about Axon, uh, the company where I'm CEO and the stuff we make today, that's just Axon, A-X-O-N.com.
0: Awesome. This was this was a phenomenal uh, conversation. Really glad to, uh, to have you on and take some time out of your day. So appreciate you uh, sharing your story with the audience.
1: That's been fantastic. I appreciate the opportunity to share.
0: Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that interview and look forward to having you for the next one. And if you are getting value out of this podcast, please head over to iTunes, leave me a quick review, let me know how I'm doing. It's the only way I'm going to be able to make this podcast better each and every episode. And go connect with me online at BrianAndreco on Instagram or Twitter. Or head over to my website, com, where I house the podcasts, you know, my CrossFit journey, a ton of blog articles. I even have a Now page to kind of keep people up to speed on the last couple months. Um, at worst, it gives my mom peace of mind to keep tabs on me and know that I'm doing okay. So I hope you guys continue to do great. Um, I look forward to having you on another episode and keeping connected online. Take care. Have a phenomenal week